Hi, this is Paul. I'm preaching this week. This isn't your rough draft. The rough draft will come out on Saturday. I'm preaching this week on the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are one of the most interesting. The Sermon on the Mount is a, is a very interesting part of the New Testament. It's Jesus' most famous sermon as such. And you would imagine that after 2,000 years, everyone would sort of agree on exactly what it is and how to approach it. Now, that isn't the case. Uh, Craig Bloomberg, in his commentary, writes this about it. Perhaps no other religious discourse in the history of humanity has attracted the attention which has been devoted to the Sermon on the Mount. Philosophers and activists from many non-Christian perspectives have refused, worship Je refused to worship Jesus, nevertheless have admired his ethic. In the 20th century, Mahatma Gandhi was the sermon's most famous non-Christian devotee. The literature on the sermon is vast. One recent survey has identified 36 different interpretations. Only eight of the most significant and influential interpretations can be listed. And then he goes on from there. Since the medieval times, there have been two levels of ethics in Jesus' teaching, with the sermon reflecting the stricter requirements for those who would pursue a higher level of righteousness, exactly, for example, clergy and monastic orders. That's sort of two-speed religion that I talked about, um, referring to Charles Taylor's observation, where the laity have one le level of ethics and the, the clerics or the saints have a different level of ethics. And so, well, um, the only... Superior Christians can live up to the Sermon on the Mount. Everyday Christians can, you know, don't have to don't have to worry about it. And of course, Charles Taylor makes a comment about the Reformation, where, um, for example, in John Calvin's Geneva, um, it was expected that that the, the project was to have all Christians live at the same speed. In Luther's wildly uh, widely influential approach, the sermon functions as as the law does for Paul. God's impossible moral demands disclose the depths of our sinfulness and drive us to our knees in repentance. And that's you pretty commonly hear that in Protestant sermons. Many Anabaptists applied the sermon's ethics in an extremely literal fashion to the civil sphere and endorsed a full-fledged pacifism. Now, part of what's happening with Verveke's project is that we are negotiating between the four P's. And I noticed in the comment section, Nate and um, Anselman sort of squared off about the propositional. The propositional is not going away. Part of the reason the propositional has been forefronted to such a degree is because, I believe, of the printing press and modernity, because the printing press really mainly affords propositional knowledge propagation. Um, modernity with its, um, as sort of its materialist biases and its referential, nearly exclusive referential theory of truth um, promoted, very much distorted the propositional. And, and so when Verveke talks about the non-propositional, I think initially I sort of heard this as, and, and John certainly has this agenda in terms of prioritizing the mystical over the, I don't know if he'd even agree to this. I'd be, I'll have to ask him next time we talk. But so, so part of the, an ongoing civil war in 
religious terms, and this goes far beyond Christianity, is sort of the, the mystical versus the applied. I'll, I'll, I'll use those terms. I, I've been reading a history of the Jews, and in the medieval period, there was a very interesting debate about you know, which is preferred, to just study Torah all the time or to have it applied. And, um, you know, the, the, the debate goes fierce. And in many ways, they said, well, you know, studying Torah is the highest thing that you can do unless, of course, some widow is outside your door. And if you turn away the widow because you're studying Torah, well, you have failed the law, and rightfully so, because by its very nature, law attempts, attempts to... Um, use the propositional to create um, a much more procedural, but then potentially perspectival and participatory reality. Reality is always more than the propositional, and I think John nicely lays that out here. So back to the back to the reflections on the Sermon on the Mount. So in the medieval period, this is history of interpretation, which which always fascinates me. In the medieval period, um, there, there's sort of the the sermon was often read sort of with a two speed. So the mystics will read the sermon in a and the the mystics and the ascetics will read the sermon in a particular way. But regular people living in the village can't live that out. The Protestant Reformation very much seeks to have the whole community live it out. But then Luther, in a sense, uses it as um, as this is a guide to our sinfulness, and you can hear this in sermons beyond Lutheranism. Of course, Calvin brings in the third use of the law, where the law is a, a guide to great uh, to grateful living. You can often hear misery, deliverance, gratitudes in my rough draft for Sunday. Anabaptists very much stressed sort of a, a physicalist procedural application of the New Testament. If the magisterial Protestants had a predilection um, sometimes to their gain, sometimes to their detriment for, um, let's say, I, see, I'm really trying to not use the word literal because the word is just so deeply conflicted. But if the Protestants tended to, um, tended to lean on propositional belief and assent, Anabaptists tended to lean on very biblicistic procedural knowledge. And that's that's sort of where the, the the Anabaptist tradition went. Protestant liberals have seen the sermon as a paradigm for social uh, for the social gospel and a call to the church to usher in the kingdom of God on earth, a view also adopted by in a secular form by Karl Marx. Existentialists, and you, you see a sort of peeling back the time now, that's so uh, Protestant liberalism, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, existentialists, you know, really coming to their own in the middle of the 20th century as the, as the Holocaust sort of rips apart so many of the religious projects of, of Christianity and, and, and Judaism. Existentialists have rejected um, taking any of the sermon's ethics as absolute, but view it rather as a profound challenge to personal decisions to live in the consciousness of human finitude and divine encounter. Albert Schweitzer's interim ethic also relativized the sermon by finding it a unique urgency that remained as long as the first disciples, like Jesus, mistakenly believed that they would return in their lifetime. And um, in the Gifford lectures, 
Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, does a nice job in addressing that issue that cropped up um, in, in the last couple of centuries. Dispensationalism has classically limited the sermon's ethic to a future millennial kingdom which Jesus offered uh, to the Jews by which they rejected so that it was postponed until his second coming. All of these approaches contain an element of truth, but none of them fully satis um, seems fully satisfactory. Nothing in the sermon suggests that Jesus' commands are limited only to a certain group of his followers. They are, in fact, expressly addressed to all disciples. Those who have already repented are seeking further instruction. Um, those who have already repented and are seeking further instruction. Commands for disciples are not self-evidently limited to personal relationships, nor clearly applicable to governments. Questions for pacifism versus just war and the extent of the church-state interaction are legitimate, but not directly addressed. Nor does anything in the sermon suggest that Jesus' commands here are more or less absolute than any of the rest of his ethics, or the teachings be restricted either to present norms or future possibilities. The type of society requiring commands against murder, adultery, divorce, and so on can hardly be described as millennial, but that does not mean that Jesus' vision is fully realizable in this age. Finally, it is impossible to separate Jesus' ethic from allegiance to his person, as Marx and Gandhi tried, or to find any consistent form of application if one finds pure, um, one follows pure existentialism. And then Bloomberg opts for which would probably be my favorite, um, inaugurated eschatology, seems most in keeping with Jesus' teaching on the kingdom more generally. Inaugurated eschatology recognizes an already not yet tension in which the sermon's ethics remain the ideal or goal of all Christians in every age, but which will never fully be realized until the consummation of the kingdom at Christ's return. We can expect the Spirit to empower us to make substantial strides in obedience, even as we recognize that our sinfulness will prevent us from ever coming close to attaining God's standards. So that's Bloomberg. Now, the Sermon on the Mount opens with the Beatitudes. And so much of what I've seen in my ministry, I, I, I've often watched Christians sort of use these for devotions, um, read them for church devotions, let's say council devotions, because they're, they're so striking. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the, poor, the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you look at, oh, let's see, did I keep the search up here? If you look at, these are Beatitudes. Um, it's, a particular, it's a particular type of speech. And you can find them in the Psalms. There's a good many of them in the Psalms. You can find them in Proverbs. You can find a few littered in the Prophets. And then you can find a lot of them in the Apocrypha, which again is, is mostly wisdom literature. And as I'll go into, into the rough draft, which I won't go into now, the fact that Beatitudes are so well known and so expected really makes what I think the Beatitudes and how Jesus uses them at the beginning of his sermon as aporia. 
Now the best, the best. I don't want to. I don't want to say bad things about my. I think all of my um, homiletics professors are dead now, so I'll I'll risk it. I'll say this: the class from seminary that I that I have used most for guiding how I prepare sermons was my class on Christian education with Marion Spud Snapper. And those of you who are within the CRC might, might grin when you think of Snapper. Snapper was an interesting <clears throat> faculty member at Calvin Seminary back in the day because unlike just about all the rest of Calvin Seminary's faculty, he was not an ordained minister. He was a school teacher and he was a master school teacher and he taught elementary school he um he he, he was also he, he created sunday school curriculum and so he was there as the as the professor of of church education at the seminary and and it was just a it was just a fun strange funny guy he was a master teacher and his classes were so fun and, and one of the key things that he always taught us in terms of lesson planning and i've always used it in terms of um, sermon planning was raise dissonance, and and aporia is is basically dissonance raising, and so when I look at the Beatitudes and how Jesus breaks, and in fact, you know where he goes there in the sermon from there. I mean, first he said there, there's so much aporia in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's part of the reason um, the church has struggled with it because. It's part of what Jesus does. He's just so completely unsettling to people at such a deep level, whereas he's both affirming the he's both affirming the the Hebrew scriptures and turning them over. You know, in verse seventeen, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will enter, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's now Dikaiosune, Righteousness, I very much recommend Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy to, to get a sense of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Dallas Willard taught, he, was a, he had a PhD in phenomenology, he taught at University of Southern California, died not too many years ago. Um, tremendous impact. In, in many ways, this meaning crisis, he, he talked about it without using those words, at least in in Christian evangelical circles. But then Jesus goes on to say things like, you have heard it said long, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Well, that's in the Ten Commandments, Jesus. Um, but I tell you, and it's like, Jesus, are you really going to edit the Ten Commandments? I mean, this is this is the kind of thing that got Jesus killed. And Anyone who, who reads this and has an understanding of the kind of debates that were going on in his time and place should, should, should clearly understand why it's really amazing he lasted three years doing this. Now, as it happens, I'm you know always working on my, my sermon stuff and my local church stuff while I'm also doing all this YouTube stuff. And so 
When I was this week just reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount, of course, I also had just released that video that I had I'd done on episode three of, of John's project after Socrates. And once I, once I really sort of got my mind around aporia, as John laid it out, I could, I could really see how Jesus uses that, especially in the Beatitudes. If, because just, just do a little consordant, concordant search that, you know, similar to what, let's see if I can, uh, just do a little concordance search for blessed is if you have a, if you have your Bible on a computer or a cell phone and you can, you just, just read those, all of those beatitudes in the Psalms. They're, they're, they're all everything you would expect from a religious book. And then when you read Jesus beatitudes, they're just, they're just stark. They're not irreverent because truth be told, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the meek, you know, the one that Blessed are the meek. Give me the one that Jordan Peterson has, you know, sort of elevated. Um, that, that's not breaking. That's not breaking the the wisdom teaching or the. It's not breaking the Old Testament, but it's it's sort of taking it and putting it in a frame that I remember seeing. There used to be a, a website called Hollywood Jesus, where he would sort of go through films and look at symbolism. The symbolism thing's been around a while, folks. But look at symbolism, and I remember he was—he was—he had a really good write-up on, oh, the Moulin Rouge. I, I love that film. It's a great film. Um, it's a great film about love. And he had a, this write-up about Moulin Rouge, and he talked about how red and blue. When you put red and blue together, it does something to us because you, your eyes can't quite figure it out. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And so for, for 2,000 years, scholars have been racking their head against this. And then when I listened to John talk about aporia, you know, things really clicked. But let's just like, oh, right. Orientation is this combination of, right, assuming the right agent arena relationship, the right perspectival knowing, so that I can find my way. So now, now again, one of the things that I have that has always lived with me ever since my college days when I started trying to make Christianity my own. was the, the, the rather obvious reality that mere profession of faith is insufficient. Now, I, I don't in any way want to dismiss profession of faith, but Jesus says it all the time, you know, Lord, Lord, you will, people will cry out to me, you know, you know, we've done miracles, we've you know, we've done all these things. Why, you know, depart from me, I've never known you. Jesus says, you know, those who love me keep my commandments. So the Bible is has never simply said that, you know, in Protestant circles, sometimes it's called easy believism. 
where, well, if you just assent mentally, the book of James goes at this really hard and says, you know, the devils, the devils believe all these things to be true. That's propositional belief, but they shudder. So, you know, the Bible definitely, definitely does not endorse easy believism. And, and there was the big fight in evangelicalism of, oh boy, I'm getting old, uh, 40, 50 years ago. Um, it was sort of this discipleship battle and, and whole ranges of new curriculum went through the church. In fact, just, just yesterday I met with some people locally and they, um, they're, you know, the woman in that, of that couple, she's, she, she's part of the navigators and navigators are this evangelical movement where they, you know, help do discipleship. And I, there's a pastor, there's a CRC church in Port, Port, is it Port San Lucie, Florida? Um, it's become a mega church basically because the pastor has really practiced a discipleship model. He, he would meet with someone and, um, and he'd, like in the second meeting, he'd say, okay, you, you get two meetings. And after that, the only way that I'm going to continue to meet with you is if, in fact, you make a disciple. You have someone who is willing to be discipled by you. And as I disciple you, you will disciple them. And what he did in this church is create an entire string of people who were not just listening to sermons on Sunday, not just doing daily devotions, but were really digging into their discipleship and getting real with the pastor and, you know, in, in some ways similar to, let's say, a recovery group. And so all of this to say that real Christianity is always engaging all four Ps, all right? That's, that's, that's the goal here because we are not as Jamie Smith would say, we are not heads on a stick. Um, we are fully embodied. And so real Christianity engages all four Ps. Orientation is deep. It's primordial. It's presupposed in everything we're doing. When you come into a place, before you start to do anything, you have to properly orient to it. Ratio religio. You have to properly orient. Okay. So he proposes that dialectic brings about this reorientation by exposing us to what he calls radical aporia. Now, many people have noted, and it's part of the way Socrates is monstrous, that Socrates generates aporia in people. What does aporia mean? Well, it means... The original meaning is something like, I've lost my way. I don't know how to get, go forward. I'm stuck. I'm like, it's confusion, but confusion in the real deep sense of disorientation. You're disoriented. I don't know how to go forward. I don't, I don't know how to go back. I'm, I'm lost. We know that when Socrates does this. It's mentioned frequently in the Platonic Dialogues. Scholars, scholars talk about it all the time, about... Socrates, and you can even get it in the way the characters who are interacting with Socrates talk about him. They talk about him like he's a stingray, like you get, you've, been, you've been stung by a stingray and you're like, oh, you get all disoriented. Or he's like an enchanter and he puts a spell on you and you're all disoriented. That's aporia. And we've talked about how Socrates brings you to this state, this realization of your ignorance but especially at the perspectival and participatory levels. 
Okay. Now, think about almost every significant transformation. Now, when we're talking about transformations, I could go back to Jordan Peterson talking to the chaplain at Liberty University. Um, in Christianity, um, the transformation we usually look to is conversion. When you look in recovery groups, when you talk about hitting rock bottom, there's definitely an aporic sense to that. If so, I, you know, <laughs> I, I listen to this, I listen to aporia, 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 and I, you know, I'm doing all this listening and I'm not doing all this reading. And so I'm glad they pulled it up on the, on the screen because, oh, okay, well now I know it starts with an A and not an E. So, so then I searched for it in YouTube land. Let's see. And well, there's a, you know, there's a channel called it, but then, but then I found this video, which was, which was quite interesting because th this video made, made the point that the Joker in The Dark Knight, I thought this was a great example, the Joker in The Dark Knight, his, his main tool is aporia. And, and, and that's really helpful to know because uh, aporia is, can be used to, to many different effects. And, and what the Joker does again and again is try to use, the, in fact, the whole channel, um, this whole channel is named aporia. Let's see, this is 2.5 million views five years ago. Um, what is this? This is mostly uh, interesting, interesting little channel. Looks like mostly abandoned a couple of years ago. But I thought it was a great illustration, great illustration of Aporia because of what the Joker does in the Dark Knight. And that's that's in a sense his superpower is he 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 brings doubt, disruption, disorder. And I mean, that can be used for evil and it can be used for good. The other thing this made me think about, boy, I just haven't really dug into this video. This uh, chaos, Consciousness, Chaos and Order with Dr. Robin Carhart Harris. And again, it had, the, had magic mushrooms on the thumbnail, which turned me off to it. But when I listened to the video, this is... This is a this is a favorite of his recent videos for me. Um, maybe we should maybe we should play some of it. They're talking about depression. Uh, it was you know I have that silly ad in there. Um, let's see. This hippocampal systems, for example, that are key to the movement of information from short-term attention to long-term storage. So imagine that when you encounter something stressful. The first thing that happens is that there is category death and perhaps neural death that's proportionate to the degree of stress. And that might be a necessary precondition for learning, but it's not learning, right? It's just the falling apart of old pathological systems. Okay. That's a great little clip actually in this video because a lot of what they talk about is this I did the video on the myth of mental illness, and, and I said in that video, you got to be careful with this because that book came out 50 years ago, and if you have, in some senses, a 
a heavily Cartesian dualist frame. Um, that book is sort of settled in that, even though there's a lot that's very right about that book. But part of what this whole, this little corner is about, part of what Jordan Peterson's work is about, John Verveke's work, is, is breaking down that Cartesian dualism and recognizing how, recognizing the deep connections that we have between us and this world. And, and what this particular video is about, even though they're going to talk, they, they talk about psychedelics here, is how traumatic and non-traumatic, how, how our experience constructs the brain, how the brain, of course, impacts the mind. And because the brain and the mind are certainly not disconnected. Now, um, it, it, a physicalist will sort of say that they're um, identical. I, and I, I, I don't believe that. Um, but there's a deep connection. I, and, and I think part of the reason that whole frame breaks down is because my mind is connected to your minds and it's connected through this video. It's connected through YouTube. It's connected through Twitter. It's connected through estuary meetings. It's connected through uh, notes and letters and emails. It's connected. We're deeply connected, especially our minds are connected in that way, even though our brains are disconnected. And so mind is is a far bigger and broader category than brain. And And I think we have very little understanding exactly how far mind goes. I watched, to, to highlight another video, this morning I finally finished up the significant big conversation with John Verveke and Jordan Daniel Wood on Grail Country. I do have thoughts about this video. I don't know how accessible this video will be to many people. It's it's pretty esoteric. And most of the video most of the video is pretty esoteric. There there are some I do have some things that I might that I might say about it at some point, but um you know, one of one of the interesting one of the interesting places are is poor. I feel bad for John because he keeps running into people who will say things like when when Nate Heil basically says, "Well, I don't, um, you know, I don't, I don't see persons as exclusively connected to the um, <laughs> basically to 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 we little carbon beings with skin wrapped around us because of the uh, what did he say the." Um, the divine realm, or I forget what what term he said. The the heavenly host. No, it wasn't. It was it was the. But poor John has to just kind of stop. And oh yeah, that's right. I'm talking to these crazy Christians who who really believe this stuff. <laughs> kind of a shock from his university context. But you know what Jordan just said there. There's this big debate with respect to depression. Well, is it? Is it depression if you're sad because your spouse died? Or is depression sort of a dysfunction of the brain that's inside your head? And, and how should the psychological community think about those two realities? And, and of course, there's questions of pathology and, and norm in there. And, and so what, what Jordan is talking about here is how 
Well, events shape us. Um, talked a number of times about The Body Keeps the Score, a pretty amazing book about trauma. And events don't just shape our brains. Events shape our bodies, and 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 this gets into us. And so, you know, then they're they're talking about well, they're really wrestling with the question: well, what what on earth is depression? How are we supposed to think about it? And that's a problem because well, now you don't have the old pathological system, but you also don't have anywhere to go. Right. So it's only the death without the rebirth, and then people experience that with extreme pain too, because. And I, I wonder sometimes, too, if that psychogenic pain, like depression, for example, isn't actually the psychological consequences of the neural degeneration and the category death that, well, that we're referring to as a consequence of stress. Poss possibly, yes. <laughs> I mean, a theme I'd want to bring in uh, would be disconnect. And uh, I suspect uh, if we take a classic uh, aspect of neuroticism like depression, um, then um, uh, there is, I think, depression, and of course this has been written about um, extensively and famously by the likes of, of Freud, um, there is a, a, a sort of forced retreat from objects um, that one would in invest in, often implicitly mm -hmm. love objects, mm -hmm. you know, but that that's meant very... Um, broadly and generally, so that might be one's vocation, you know, that is a, an object of uh, intense investment or in Freudian language, uh, cathexis, mm -hmm. um, the investment mm -hmm. of libidinal uh, energy. I, I thought the, the question of investment in vocation, I, I've been making my way through this video. Um, and, and part of what makes, but part of what made Jordan just so interesting to follow is just how transparent he is. And, and there are moments in this video where he's, um, I, I, actually it's easiest to find in Chad's video, Chad's clipping of it. Th th this isn't the video, but this, so this was, this was, he was clipping the video that I had made and. Professionals, so that the working professionals have to work in a way that isn't truthful. I mean, how do you even fight how do you fight back against that? At what point do you just stop playing in that game? You know, people have asked me that too. Why don't you just give up your license? And I would say, well, because I wouldn't be giving it up. I would be allowing it to be taken away from me. Like if and, and the and the and this group of psychologists is surprised that Jordan would in this moment, draw very careful distinctions and dig in like a badger. In like a badger. <laughs> did, you, did you pay no attention to 2016? This is the honey badger. Watch it run in slow motion. It's pretty badass, look. It runs all over the place. Whoa, watch out, says that bird. Ew, it's got a snake. Oh, it's like chasing it. a jackal. Oh my gosh. You. Oh, the honey badger. <laughs> Chad, Chad having fun. Let me find the right video. You go there, it's kind of like mom. California. You can feel the weight of silence in that place. Yeah, well, your mom and I have been back here for a month. You know, we we're pretty worried about coming back because we faced a fair bit of resistance 
in our neighborhood. Like I'm probably more unpopular in some sense in Toronto and more particularly in my neighborhood than I am anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And so it was somewhat worrisome to come back to Toronto. It's very you know, worrisome. My son moved out of our neighborhood in part because it was uncomfortable for him to be there, even though that's where he grew up, um, thanks to the machinations of certain neighbors. It's been hard on your mom too, eh? Because I come downstairs, well, the other day when I was going through what happened in 2016, you know, I came downstairs, I could hardly stand up. A lot of the symptoms I had over the last couple of years came back. And that's really pretty frightening for me and for her to see. You know, I had to sit down on the floor five or six times. This sounds like, this sounds like PTSD. Well, who knows, you know? what it is, but well, it sounds, I recovered fairly quickly, still. which is, you know, an indication of my return to health. So, but it's hard on your mom too, because I'm bitchy as can possibly be after going upstairs and wrestling with this material. And, you know, we had a big conversation this week about how she should be involved, because I don't want to drag her into this. And, you know, and she doesn't want to blame me for being entangled in it. And we don't want to stress our relationship you know, so I don't know how much to protect her from this and how much to share with her. You know, I thought, well, maybe when I'm writing out my college defense, I should go to a hotel room and, you know, grapple with it there because I'm much more irritable, at least for some period of time after confronting all of this. Like, it's calmed down a bit now that I've got my argument, you know, in order. I've looked through all the material. There isn't any snakes left under the carpet to bite me. And so I think I'm through the most demanding part of it, although God only knows what's going to happen as this unfolds, because there's always the yeah. possibility I'll make a mistake while I'm defending myself too, you know, because I could easily do that because it's so complicated. But, um, but, you know, your mom and I are on the same page in relationship to this, which is, you know, she believes that if I just say what's happening, if I do my best to tell the truth without adornment and to try to keep my volatile temper under control that this will turn out the way things have turned out for us in the past, which is it'll be rather dreadful in the short term, but resolve itself somewhat favorably in the medium to long run. But that's easy to say when the medium to long run hasn't made itself manifest yet. Yeah. This also might just be one place he he talks about you know basically this has been his profession and so there, there's something very aporic about this whole chapter for him too where it, it's a that the college of psychologists coming after him just sort of takes him apart and and that that sense of of physical illness and trauma and stress returning now what was interesting about this this conversation with um, with Carhart Harris was the canalization of trauma in the mind, and then the question is: do, Does this class of drugs, in a sense, um, blunt force break some of that? some of that stuff that has built up. In other words, it's it, it's so, sort of aporia in a bottle or aporia in a mushroom or aporia in a pill. 
And, and to me, that, that really helped me, that metaphor has sort of helped me get my mind around the function of this and why it, in some people, acts as a promoter towards transformation such as religious conversion. Now, again, before I likened it to when, you know, I had two sons who played varsity basketball and they have schnozzes like mine. And if you're, and they're both played big man positions. And so if we're down under the basket, there's a lot of elbows, there's a lot of up and down, and you got something this prominent out there, it's going to take some hits. And at some point it's going to break because especially a, a, a young high schooler, um, you know, these bones aren't quite as set as a as an old man's bones are, and whack, that nose gets broken. And then, you know, ideally you want to put it back right away, or, you know, the old shoulder thing, you want to put it back right away. But if you don't, if that bone gets set wrong, you're going to have to re-break it to set it right. And in a sense, it, it almost seems like this class of drugs has some capacity to break us inside and, and obviously, with the, the attempted therapeutic um, realization of these drugs, they're, they're sort of a breaking in order to reset something straight. And that's, that, that, to me, made, made sense of it. I know I should probably talk to uh, Preston Sprinkle again because he... He's made quite a career of, of dealing with LGBTQ issues in the Protestant church. And I, when I talked to him last, he, he asked me about psychedelics because he was saying, I'm trying to figure out what sort of the next big difficult wave in the evangelical church is going to be. What do you think about psychedelics? I said, yeah, that's a good candidate for it. But I, I think part of what, I, I think part of what's, what at least I hear popularly people getting wrong about psychedelics. Here I brought up psychedelics myself instead of forced to talk about it. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Is I think people see them as having power to set the proper agenda. And and I think in fact they're their value is in destruction. They're, they're in a sense, I mean, chemotherapy, especially less sophisticated forms of chemo, chemotherapy were all about destroying cells. And the assumption was because cancer was growing faster than normal, normal cellular development, you basically starve out the cancer by stopping all development because normal healthy cells could basically recover and, and cancer cells grow faster. So it seems to me that the that that the psychedelics have an aporic quality to them, and and again, as I as I used with my examples, um, aporia isn't necessarily a, a. It can be used for for many ends. I mean, the Joker is a master of aporia. Socrates is a master of aporia. And I think part of what makes Jesus so powerful is he's a master of aporia. Um, those who have recovery programs put their life back together, it's because rock bottom is an aporic condition. 
and those who at least face rock bottom and use it as aporia, as, okay, going to make a clean break from my old life and my new life. I mean, that's classic language of Christian conversion. Um, the old is gone, the new has come. Uh, burning off the deadwood, Peterson would like to say. And aporia has that function. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You'd say, no, the poor in spirit, that's the that's the anawim, that's the that's the tradition of of the humble, broken ones who who their only the only help they have left in the world is God. Same with the meek. Uh, those who mourn, the losers. Um, losers will win. Um, those who um, those who have no resource, no spiritual resource left, poverty of spirit, let's say, no spiritual resource left, they're going to receive everything. The meek inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you only hunger and thirst because you don't have food and drink, they will be filled. I mean, this is this is not Old Testament Beatitudes. This is something starkly different, and it's aporic because people listen to it, but it's aporic in a very positive way because on one hand, it breaks the world, and on the other hand, it already begins filling the religious imagination with hope. Hope for the people who seem least likely to receive it. Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, leave a comment. I'm going to put psychedelics in the title so that ought to get some interesting, interesting comments.